0: So this morning, we are in Mark chapter 3, and I wanted to just kind of give a recap of what's happened since Mark chapter 1. We spent two lessons in Mark chapter 1, and here we are jumping to chapter 3. So just to kind of take us along, and I encourage you to read this on your own. Uh, If you don't have a Bible reading plan that you're following, one thing that you could do to keep you busy is just kind of read some of the chapters that we skipped over in Mark, uh, and we'll be jumping to chapter 6 next week. And so there's chapters four and five there. You can just read, you know, that's just two days of of reading, you know, throughout the week, and then maybe read chapter six as well if you're feeling extra studious before we cover that next week. But I want you to understand, and this is something I wasn't really thinking about when I was putting the lesson together, but I realized this morning that um, in chapter three, things come to a head. There's a culmination of things that have actually been at work for a while. And we saw the same thing when we studied the Gospel of John. There's this conflict arising between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus. And there's this friction because he doesn't do things the way the establishment does. And he does what God wants him to do. And they do what their tradition says to do. And those things don't always agree. And it doesn't mean tradition is always bad, but some of these religious leaders were using their tradition and their position as a substitute for actually obeying God. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist before him that we talked about back in chapter one, this friction arises between the ones who are doing what God's called them to do and people who are doing what they think they ought to do and assuming God will be happy with that. And it turns out that God's actually not particularly happy with these religious leaders because of various issues, and this is where the friction comes in. So if you look back at Mark chapter two, that's what I'm gonna try and get here somehow, I end up on chapter three, I was so excited about chapter three, but just as a, as a prelude here, also I wanna talk about the title for this lesson, and it really corresponds to chapter two as well, that although our book says Jesus's question, and I totally understand that choice of a title, that life boy chose, I think a better title is Jesus is criticized. Because mm-hmm. if you actually look at today's focus verses, Mark chapter 30, verse 20 to 30, nobody's really asking Jesus a question. They're questioning him and in, in the case of they're planting seeds of doubt. They're causing other people to question Jesus because of things they say. They're not really coming to Jesus with sincere question. So don't misunderstand. Jesus's question and really his the legitimacy of his ministry is called into question. In that sense, the word is a really good choice. But what we really see going on is people criticizing Jesus. And if you have been involved in ministry any length of time, criticism is no stranger to anyone who's trying to do a work for God. And Jesus was not immune to it any more than any of us when we try to do the things that we know are right. And not only do we see Jesus being criticized, but even moreover this morning I had regrets driving over here I kind of realized actually the the best and part of it is in is in my outline but Jesus responds to criticism probably is an even better title for today's lesson because we only spend 3 verses on the criticism and Jesus takes stage for the rest of these verses today doesn't he? So, it's really how Jesus responds to criticism, and I don't know about you, but I'm sure that I could use help learning to respond to criticism better. It's really easy to respond to criticism poorly, to lash out at somebody, to in meanness and resentment. When someone comes at you, you want to come back at them, and an argument ensues, Right? Thoughts of Thanksgiving dinner was all going so well until this subject came up. And then the fireworks began. Hard to believe that for us today, Thanksgiving is only two months away in a couple weeks. So we're getting there. But the fact is, we can just think that as groups of people get together, whether it's in the church or outside the church, we have friction, we have conflict, we have criticism. And how do we respond in those moments? And Jesus setting a golden example for us. Today, So, we will take a look back at chapter 2, look at some background, and then we'll move in and see what happens at, at the culmination after several criticisms have been issued. How does Jesus respond to that criticism? What we can learn from it? All right, so we look at uh, Jesus is popular, but he's facing some criticism. And that's what we see here in verses 20 and 21. We see his family's reaction to his ministry. We see the scribes making some charges against Jesus. And it'll make even more sense as we see what's happened in chapter 2. And then we'll get into Jesus' response. And then at the end, he gives a a really sober warning. So let's go back and go ahead and look. And just to give you just a brief outline of what happened in chapter 2. Jesus returns to Capernaum, and Capernaum is kind of a center location for his ministry. In fact, um, when I see this at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, I think probably when it talks about Jesus being at home in chapter 1, it's probably talking about Capernaum as opposed to Nazareth. We know that he grew up in Nazareth. He was actually born in Bethlehem, but they returned to Nazareth when he was young. But Capernaum may be where his, his mother and brothers live, and that actually comes up later in the story, come to think of it. Um, a couple things happen in chapter 2, basically four things. One is he heals a paralytic, but before he heals them, he tells them his sins are forgiven. Remember that story that his friends carry a man and he says your sins are forgiven, and then he gets up and walks. Uh, the, the, the religious leaders aren't really upset that the man walked, they're upset that Jesus had the audacity to tell someone that their sins were forgiven. Like, you don't, you're you just a man, who are you to tell people their sins are forgiven? So, There, the friction begins. But Jesus uses the miracle to demonstrate that he has that authority. Well, leaders don't like it when Other people have authority. They want to be in power. So the conflict arises. The next thing we see in chapter 2, Jesus calls Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, to be a disciple. And as a result, Jesus gets criticized by these religious leaders who already were kind of, who is this guy? I think he is forgiving people sins for hanging out with tax collectors who had a terrible um, reputation remember they were thought of as cheats because however much money they collected above the taxes that were actually due they got to keep so it was in their interest to overcharge people more than they really owed the romans in taxes and pocket the rest it was like legalized extortion in a way and so they were just hated by the people it's bad enough you're taking our money and giving it to the romans Jews didn't like that. But then you're taking extra to line your own pockets. All right. So he's there eating with sinners and tax collectors. And again, he gets criticized. Third thing happens in chapter two is he gets criticized because he and his disciples don't fast. John the Baptist's disciples made fasting a part of their regular routine. Jesus and his disciples are going out preaching. <coughs> And he's doing things like feeding the 5,000. That hasn't happened yet in the story of Mark. That's coming, right? Jesus, a Passover meal, right? We associate Jesus food. We don't associate Jesus with fasting except during the temptation that we read about in chapter one when he was in the wilderness for 40 days. So they criticize him. Well, if you're this religious leader, how come you and your disciples don't fast regularly? All right, so they're kind of grasping for straws, but they're finding just anything they can criticize because Jesus is kind of a threat to their authority. So that's the third instance of criticizing him in chapter 2 and the 4th. They're walking through the fields. The disciples pluck heads of grain. And technically, the, the religious leader says, you can't do that because, oh, by the way, today's the Sabbath day. We remember from our study of John that it was always a conflict. Jesus, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath day. I, I But I just healed a guy. I helped him. Why can't you help people on the Sabbath day? And so these religious leaders, they were very zealous about the Sabbath day, which is better than the ones who got sent into exile 500 years ago. But they've gone too far. They're they're legalistic. And now the rules are more important than the spirit of the reason God actually asked them to honor the Sabbath day. And here's another example. Like all they're doing is wandering through. They're not really harvesting wheat. Come on. They're just getting a snack on the way. And Jesus defends his disciple. He said, I mean, even David he went to the high priest's house to get bread for his men when they were desperately hungry on the run from Saul. You're going to criticize my disciples because they just plucked a little bit of grain while they're in the field, passing through. Then they even like those hobbits in the Lord of the Rings, like stealing all the, the pumpkins and everything from the farmer. Uh, they're just kind of walking through, grabbing some grain. And that was legal. That was actually okay, but by the Jews' rules, you weren't supposed to do that. So they were nitpicking Jesus. Throughout his ministry already, that's four things in chapter two that they criticize Jesus for. Jesus hasn't actually done anything wrong, but have you ever noticed that some some people are just magnets for criticism? No matter what they do, their critics are going to complain about. It, okay, it sounds like I feel like I just summed up American politics with that. And here it is, here it is with Jesus, right? So uh, you know it doesn't matter, right? If anybody does something, the other side is going to find something to criticize, and and vice versa. So Jesus here is kind of in this political firestorm. No matter what he does, they're going to find something to complain about, even though he didn't do anything wrong. So all these complaints are culminating as we get to our story here in chapter 3. So as we go through this, I do want to notice there's more than one group of people here. We will see the religious scribes who represent these religious leaders, the authority, the Sanhedrin. The Jewish ruling council, they ruled under the Romans. The Romans were really in charge, but they had some degree of self-rule under that, so they could establish the Old Testament laws and, and be, at least on the surface, obedient to what God had commanded them through Moses. But we also see Jesus' family wrapped up in this. And so that's why I, w- I had to be real careful about words, what word I, I choose, that, you know, what I, what I chose. I'm a math teacher, tense is tough for me. But what word I chose for the title, much as I love to wordsmith, because I wanted to say Jesus is slandered, but I don't think Jesus' family was slandering him. And we see kind of two groups of people caught up in this, and we'll take a look at both of those, but think about their motivations, and then think about, like we said, what lessons can we learn from how Jesus responded to this criticism here? So let's get into it. Our our outline today is, the Savior responds. Jesus is criticized, and he responds to that criticism in an enlightening way, and that's the outline we'll be filling out today. And this outline, a little different, this actually matches up with your books, that will go all the way to verse 22 for the first part, and then skip to verse 23 from there. I think that does match up with the study guide today. So let's see, as we look at what your study guide talks about, as the skeptics, what <coughs> additional criticism... Rolls in in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, He is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. This is a fascinating, fascinating uh, accusation that they make here. But again, remember, this is their fifth criticism already of Jesus. I don't, I don't, I can't remember any from chapter one, but again, they're just finding so many things to complain about. But before that, notice his family kind of gets caught up in this. And remember the scene here, and we didn't talk about what's already happened in chapter three. He's healed a man on the Sabbath day, and that got him in even more trouble, okay, just like we saw in, when we said in John's Gospel. They hated it when Jesus actually helped someone on the Sabbath day. Don't you know it's a holy day? You're not supposed to help people. Come on. So he gets in trouble for that right in the synagogue at the beginning of chapter 3, and he withdraws, and he's doing, again, the same things we saw in chapter 1. He's healing people. He's preaching the good news, and More and more crowds, right? Remember in chapter 1, he had to get up early and go to a solitary place to pray. Because uh, even there, the crowds are looking for Everyone's searching for Jesus. Where is he? You know, you think they'd just be fixing a cup of coffee, and they're already looking for Jesus. Where is Jesus at today? Has anybody spotted Jesus? Is he in town? Did he go somewhere else? And so the crowd's very much an issue, right? Remember, even in chapter 1, he told the guy, don't tell that you've been healed. And he told everybody because he couldn't contain himself. And now Jesus having to manage this popularity, as we talked about in chapter one. So that's part of it. And I think that's what really frustrates the religious leaders, this popularity. Like, they couldn't even sit down and enjoy a meal, okay? I think I'd like to be a celebrity for, like, one day and then have everybody forget about me. Because I'm, I'm sure you hear about the stories, right? Being a celebrity, you can't go anywhere without people asking your autograph. I'm sure it's like this really, really hard life. Like, they just have it so bad compared to us, right? We should just feel sorry for all these famous people who are rich and drive all these cars and everything. It's poor people, right? But the fact is, popularity is a mixed blessing. And Jesus having to contend with that. Like, they can't even sit down without people coming up and, hey, could you heal my mother-in-law or my brother or, you know, um, you know, I got this cricket in my neck. Could you do something for that, Jesus? Because I've heard about what He's done. And big and small, all these requests come rolling in. So that's the situation. But of course, it just made the religious leaders see: He's not one of our guys. Why don't the crowds love us? Why aren't they coming to the synagogue like they're coming out to the wilderness to see John and now Jesus, who is who is now the primary ministry? So jealousy and uh we uh-huh yeah yeah but do you see that some of it's motivated out of jealousy and so that's part of it in the middle of this you notice the reaction now who's his family who's jesus family mother, his mother his half brothers so the sons of joseph and mary so they share the same mother Jesus, we know, is not Joseph's son, right? But he was born <laughs> of the Holy Spirit and Mary through that divine conception. He's the son of God. And can you, have you ever thought about what it must have been like to grow up and your older brother was Jesus? <laughs> Anybody in your family, the goody two-shoes? Maybe it was you. Maybe it was somebody else in the family. And there were times you thought that in mom and dad's eyes they could do no wrong. No matter what they did, they seemed to get away with it because they weren't really Jesus, so they probably did get away with some stuff, right? But how difficult that must have been. And I feel like they knew there was something special or different about Jesus. Like You had to at least sense that, right? He's different than us. Like, we try to get cookies out of the cookie jar, and he never does. If he wants a cookie, just ask Mom. And if she says, no, he doesn't get a cookie, like, what's up with this guy? So they must have, and I'm sure there was some resentment. From his brothers, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But they are caught off guard by all this whirlwind of popularity. Okay? Uh, would you be blown away if one of your siblings was like on national TV being interviewed for something? Does that ever happen to anybody? Like you just wouldn't even wait. What's what what's that guy doing on TV or what's she doing on TV? Like why is she popular all of a sudden? Right? Could you imagine if if suddenly whatever reason, one of your one of your siblings turned into a movie star, and all of a sudden, everybody's going, and she's doing autographs, and people are taking their picture, and it's like, well, that's just Sally. What are, What's the big deal? And I think there was some of that going on with Jesus. They saw Jesus as this goody-two-shoes sibling, and they didn't understand that there was more to it, and so they're taking it back, as you can see, and what do they say about Jesus when they hear about all the stuff that's going on and the crowds that are seeking him? He's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. You ever said that about a church member before? Don't answer that. <laughs> but he's out of his mind. You probably think that about your teacher half the time. But he's out of his mind. What does he think he's doing? What all these crowds did That's just Jesus. That's just bro. That's just my son. And Mary knew even more than her brothers did, right? I don't know if she told them about all the stories at the temple, about how Simeon said, oh, we've been looking for this child. And and all these stories that we see in the book of Matthew, right, at the birth of Jesus, and all these, you know, and the angels that announced his birth, like Mary knew there was something special about Jesus, right? That's why, you know, she said, "Hey, go see him." When they ran out of out of wine at the wedding, right? So Mary at least knew there was something up with Jesus, but even she is taken aback with what's going on, right? They set out to restrain him. They said he's even Mary thought that Jesus was getting carried away. I don't know, maybe sometimes as believers, family is the hardest group of people to please, especially if you have family members who aren't believers. And Jesus had to contend with that too. Um, What did Jesus go on to say? Uh, A prophet has honor except in in his hometown. People who know you the best have the hardest time seeing what God is doing in your life because they think they know you. And so they respond not in a supportive manner. Not in an affirming manner. They don't come out and say, Jesus is our brother and our son, and, and, and we believe you ought to listen to him, and we just think God can use him in mighty ways. They don't say that. They say he's out of his mind. Like, what does he think he's doing? Now, I don't think, and again, there's no question right here, but it's they're, they're, they are internally questioning what is he doing, right? They don't ask the question, but they're they're acting like, what are you doing, Jesus? So there is a question involved here. But that's their reaction. And they don't see Jesus the way that we understand Jesus. They have a hard time seeing that. And I don't know if you feel like people have a hard time seeing you as a believer in Christ as opposed to just the person they've known from childhood. But that's a real problem. That's a real problem in Jesus' life. That, in fact, they're in a position, they're basically saying, hey, you, son of God, you don't know what you're doing. Whoa. So if they really knew who they were talking to, they would probably maybe rephrase this, right? But they think he's out of his mind. And this reminds me of a story. I'm not going to get into it in detail. almost shows it as a cross-reference. But we're going to study in Mark chapter 8. There's going to be a time when even Peter tells Jesus, no, Lord, you're not going to do that. That's not the way this is going to go down. He tries to correct Jesus. Well, I don't know how it works out in your life, but if I ever try and correct Jesus, I quickly find out that I was the one that was wrong. And Jesus was the one who was right. And even though I may be resistant at first, God really does know what he's doing. So sometimes you just have to trust what he's doing. So the family here having a hard time, we'll talk about that some more in a moment. But also, let's talk about what the scribes had to say here. Because this is now basically the sixth time they've criticized him now that we've tacked on the story at the beginning of chapter 3, that he uh, healed the man on the Sabbath day. So here, as they hear about all this popularity, they are actively discrediting Jesus, aren't they? And let's talk about what they have to say. They, They cannot deny that he's healing people, and one of the things Jesus is doing is he is casting out forces of darkness from people's lives. He is literally casting out demons servants of Satan, the fallen angels, out of people, driving them away, these demons that were either oppressing or possessing them. And he is making them go away from these people. And these people are being healed as a result of that. And I've had conversations with my wife about this, she being a trauma counselor, that I think we have greatly underestimated in our modern age how much demonic activity is in our world, how much of it explains the sickness and the misery and even the mental illness that we (laughs) see. I'm not saying that every mental illness is related to demons. I don't think that it is. But I think some of it is and that we underestimate how much and how active the forces of darkness are in our world because we can't see that. We only see the effects, and we don't know what the source of it is. We don't know if there's a medical imbalance, which sometimes leads to depression, or if there's some kind of spiritual battle that has led to poisoning someone's soul. We can't see the difference between the two. And in our age, we tend to default to there must be some medical explanation. There must be some hormonal imbalance. But that's not always the case. I think now we've leaned too far. I think back in Jesus' day, they blamed everything on demons. And nowadays, we blame nothing on demons. And the fact is, the truth is somewhere in between. There's medical issues that lead to to mental anguish. And there's spiritual forces that lead to mental anguish. And I think they're both, both very active in our world. So as we see, it seems strange to us, I think, as modern people, to see all this Jesus casting out demons. I think the fact is that demons are very active undercover in our world. And we just underestimate how much they're responsible for. And what we're fighting against so they can't deny what jesus is doing that jesus has shown authority over the forces of darkness casting them out and we talk about him showing that but what they can do is they can undermine jesus they can undermine jesus by saying yes he's doing all these amazing things but he's doing all these good things but here's what you need to know and they make this slanderous accusation that he's casting out demons because he is allied up with the prince of demons. And that's why he has authority over demons. Beelzebub is the original term. And in the Greek, it gets changed to Beelzebul. But B-E-E-L is another form of B-A-A-L. Ever heard of Baal before? Remember the, the, the God of fertility of the Canaanites that was really popular back in the days of Elijah, and he had the showdown with the prophets on Mount Carmel. And said, so choose, make up your mind, you're gonna serve Baal or you're gonna serve God. You're gonna hurt are you gonna serve Jehovah? And so this is what's happened here: is that this this Baal. Has been mixed in with an idea the word only means lord okay that's all Baal meant he was a false god so this is a mix of that name and this is one of the the characters that come out of the canaanite mythology and he's not just Baal but Baal Zebul meaning lord of the flies I remember having to read that book in high school and I still don't know what it was really about, except some kids in the jungle that were arguing with each other. But there was a reason that name was chosen. Literally, this character, the Jews considered this to be basically a a pseudonym for Satan. And that's why they call him here the ruler of the demons. They didn't call Satan Satan, they called him Beelzebul or Beelzebul. Now, the fact that they got changed to Zebul... In, in the days of the New Testament is because, well, first of all, everybody speak, was speaking Greek, so they had to kind of change the word up a little bit anyway, just linguistically, I suppose. But there's a play on words here, and it's gone from being Lord of the Flies, the book, to Lord of the Manure Heap, Lord of Dung, or I think there's another form of it, Lord of Trash, some people called him, and they've kind of taken this character out of the Canaanite mythology and kind of turned him into um, a parody, um, someone they make fun of. They make fun of the demons by calling their ruler the lord of the trash heap, the lord of, of the landfill, the lord of manure. Okay, So that is now... You really understand what they're doing here they're trying to paint jesus they're ridiculing him by saying the only reason he has powers of the demons is he has teamed up with this demonic ruler of demons who's associated not just with flies but the manure they land on and so they are truly truly painting jesus in as poor of light as they can because they can't escape the fact he's doing these miraculous things so all they can do is slander him and say yes he's doing these things but he's teamed up with the lord of trash that's why he can do that he's teamed up with the lowest of the low all right just like we see sometimes oh yeah so and so uh, he ran for office but look at this guy who donated money to him right you just try and find this connection this is as negative as possible and paint him in a bad light that's what the religious leaders are doing to jesus they're not just accusing him of partnering up with Satan, but they're doing it in the worst light possible. They're trying to make a mockery of Jesus by associating him with this all character. And that's what they're doing. That's the charge that comes against Jesus. Doing anything they can to discredit him and associate him with the Lord of dung, the Lord of the house, the Lord of trash, the Lord of manure. And... Now you really understand the charges they've leveled. And when we go to Jesus' response, we're going to see that Jesus has a very measured response. And Jesus doesn't get into the literal mud, so worse than mud, right? Lord of done. They're slinging some really nasty stuff at Jesus here. He doesn't get personal in his response, but he does respond. We'll see that in a moment. Before we get back to the scribes, that's a big thing coming up there in the story. Let's take a look back at Jesus' family. And again, understanding. And I want to tie back. Again, we could look at Mark chapter eight and see even Peter doesn't really understand that you shouldn't be arguing with Jesus. He's the Lord. He's never wrong. But his family doesn't get it either. And let me remind you, back in John chapter seven, for those of you who went through the study of John with us, that this was a very interesting thing. Again, there's um, this is a, a, later on in the conflict. And, and the Jewish leaders are really frustrated with Jesus, and it eventually gets to the point where they're ready to kill him. And we're heading there in the Gospel of Mark as well. But remember the story that he he wouldn't even go to Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. So when it's time for the feast, he kind of decided he's going to lay low, and he told his brothers, "You leave here. You go down to Judea. You go down a couple of provinces to Jerusalem, um, because I'm not going to do it." Even though his brothers are encouraging him. Um, you know, why are you working here in Galilee? Why are you in Galilee when all the religious activity is centered down there in Jerusalem and here they're charging him? Uh, Go down there and let them see what you're doing. Why are you working in secret? Um, Which is a funny thing for them to say, right? Because you see all these crowds following Jesus around. But remember, Jesus is ministering up in Galilee, north of Samaria region, north of judea where jerusalem is so why is he on the outskirts up in the sea of galilee why is he not walking through the streets of jerusalem and so they say why don't you go down to jerusalem at the feast and show everybody what you're doing instead of being out here in these remote areas that we grew up in and notice what the commentary that the apostle john gives in verse five why were they giving Jesus his advice why were they challenging him why are you doing it here go down to jerusalem and put your big show in the city for everybody to see even though they knew that people hated Jesus, and he'd be putting his life in danger. And the commentary John had was, even his brothers, not even his brothers, believed in him. We're talking about his half-brothers. We're talking about the same family. He said he lost his mind. At this point, they're still not on board because they can't see Jesus as the son of God. They can only see him as older brother that we grew up with and resented because he was Mary's perfect son. They didn't believe in him. Unbelief will cause you not to be able to see what God is doing in a person's life. And that was the thing that Jesus' family continued to not be able to get past. Now in saying this, we ought to mention real briefly, one of Jesus' brothers was named James. This is not James the brother of John, but James, Jesus' half-brother, is going to believe in Jesus after the cross, And he wrote the book of James, you have in your Bible today. So at least one of his brothers eventually is going to come around to realize who Jesus really is and see him as the son of God. But they struggle at this point, especially early in Jesus' ministry. They can't see past the Jesus they thought they knew to see the work of God and that he really is not just their half-brother, but the son of God. So they're struggling with this. And that's why they're criticizing Jesus, because they don't understand. Understand that not everybody that criticizes your ministry does so out of spite. They may do so because they just can't see past the ordinary. They can't see the spiritual. And so they can't accept you as God's servant because they just know you as that person that they work with, that person they live near, and they just can't get past it. And they can't believe that you're that different because they don't see the change God made. Even Jesus' brothers struggled with seeing the real Jesus and who he was. All right, so let's move on. But first, let's, let's summarize what we've seen so far. And I want you to see that these two groups are a little different. Jesus' family is not trying to slander Jesus. They're not trying to torpedo his popularity. They're just misguided. So they give criticism because they really don't understand what's going on, like what? And then we have the religious leaders who are actively trying to discredit Jesus. So their criticisms are slanderous. So we have criticism coming from all sides. Some people just don't understand like Jesus' family. Some people are actively trying to oppose us and undermine us. That's what the religious leaders are doing. So Jesus has different motivations for all the criticisms coming his way. How does he respond? Let's take a look at it. Verse twenty-three. And here is what we will see if I return the right table. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. Remember this crowd that's gathered around him. And all its criticism is coming in. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Well, there's a couple things going on here. And I think before we get to the strong man, we need to talk about how Jesus here, remember, he's responding to the charge that he is teamed up with the Lord of Manure, and that is why he has power over the forces of darkness. And notice he does not lash out against the religious leaders. He doesn't stand up and say, you lie. That's the way some people respond, taking things personally or accusing the other side. And I'm not saying that people who say things like that are wrong, they may be wrong that the person's a liar, but Jesus doesn't waste any time About talking about them. He talks about the charges and he kind of just thinks through it very reasonably and says, does that make sense what they're saying about me? Does it make sense? Let's think about it. Does it make sense that I, Jesus, have teamed up with the Lord of Darkness and I'm fighting against the forces of darkness with the Lord of Darkness? Okay? I mean, you might as well have your football team, you know, with the it's like saying your team's quarterback has, you know, is, is help is, is teaming up with the other team's defensive players and that's why your team lost the game. Does that does that make any sense? who would do that? And she's saying, I'm not cooperating with the other team, I'm actively working against them. So why how is it in Satan's interest to help me undo what he's doing? in our country and to free all these people from his oppression. Does that even make any sense if we think about it? There's so many things in our culture today that if you just take a moment to think about it, you realize it doesn't make any sense. And rather than lashing out at people who have fallen for these lies, sometimes we just need to take time to walk them through it and point out. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Does it really makes make sense? Abraham Lincoln this verse to explain the Civil War. Oh, I didn't know that Lincoln had used this verse. I hadn't heard about that. It's, it's I believe it was written in the history book. He "The house divided against itself cannot stand." <clears throat> now that is true. That verse, yes. Now I remember. I think also Ben Franklin talked about that yeah. back in the uh, in the, in, the, in the Revolutionary War. So that's this is a verse that's had a profound effect on our country for sure. So he's saying, "Listen." This charge doesn't even make any sense. You're supposing I did this, but haven't they created a paradox for themselves? How, which side am I on anyway? Because I'm, I'm fighting against them, and now you're telling me I'm, I'm teaming up with them. But why would why would he do that? And he calls Satan by his proper name. He doesn't use this this slang, this this term, and, and, and this this uh, canine god to represent him. See, he just kind of sidesteps that. What's that classy of Jesus? He doesn't he didn't even talk about, you just called me the Lord of trash. Okay? Now, I will say that one thing that has disillusioned me about certain politicians is when they make everything personal. Okay? And if everything's personal to you, then you're being childish, and you're actually playing into the other side. Okay? And there's some politicians that do that to their own detriment. And it's one of the things I find the least impressive about them. But when you look at Jesus, he doesn't get all involved about being offended because he was insulted. He totally sidesteps that. And he just talks about, doesn't even talk about the slur. He talks about the fact that the charge is unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. And then he kind of turns the argument against his opponent. So just real quickly, that's where the strong man comes in. He's like saying, all right, so you're saying I'm teaming up with the forces of darkness. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's not in their interest to team up with me because I'm fighting again. I'm on the other team. But you know what? What does it mean? So if you've misinterpreted the fact that I'm casting out these demons, what does it really mean that I'm casting out these demons? What does it mean that Jesus is, so I'm not working with them. I'm working against them, but I'm still winning. What does it mean? And what it means, as we see in the story here, is that Jesus is stronger than all the forces of darkness. They would never work with me. So what does that mean? That means they can't stop me. All right? So we might say, well, my team lost because my team was working with the other team. And that might make me feel good as a Georgia Tech fan, but it's really not what's going on. The fact is that last night, Mississippi was better. Fact is, I'm encouraged that we lost by like 20 instead of 40 points. Like, hey, we're better this year. But the fact is that we lost because the other team was stronger than us. And one day, hopefully my alma mater will come back to glory and they'll be the strong team once again. But the fact is, Jesus is pointing out, the fact that I keep defeating them, all right? And we can think about like the best team in baseball, the Braves, they still only win about two-thirds of their games, a little less than that. Lately, not so many. But the fact is, even the best teams who play lots of games don't go undefeated, and Jesus is going undefeated here. And he's saying, you need to realize the real lesson is that I'm stronger than the forces of darkness in this world. And isn't that an encouragement to us? It's not by trickery that Jesus is winning. Jesus wins because he is stronger. And what does the scripture say? Stronger is he who is within us, And he was in the world, 1 John 4, 4. So that is the lesson that Jesus wants us to know. He says, think about it, and you'll realize that the slanderous charge against me is not true. And in fact, the real lesson you can learn about all the miracles I'm doing is that I am stronger than Satan. And when we believe in Jesus, we need to understand that. We need to respect Satan, because guess what? Satan is stronger than me is more clever than me, and he is an angelic being, and he is way more powerful than me. But Jesus is more powerful than Satan. So if I try to fight against the forces of darkness myself, it's not going to go well. I'm going to feel like that football team that was way outmatched and lost 42 to nothing or something. But if I, through Jesus, if he empowers me and he works through me, then I can be assured of victory, isn't that encouraging? So it's all about knowing that Jesus is stronger than the other side. So let's talk about a couple things quicker as we move forward. Number one, as we talk about uh, these verses, we're going to see Jesus makes reference to this later on. Um, and we see in the book of Matthew, skipping over some interesting verses in in uh, Matthew chapter 10, 16 to 18, you might take a look at those as well. But only have time to talk about 24 and 25 today. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Like I said, I'm not the strong one. I have to recognize that Jesus is. He's the master. I can only follow him and learn from him. But here's the part. If they have called the master of the house, the Ailes like they did here, How much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is telling us, don't be surprised, church, when the world criticizes you. Don't be surprised. Look at what they did to me. They called me the Lord of trash. You expect them to say nice things about you? Don't even be surprised. You can expect persecution and criticism when you follow Christ. It's part of the deal. What they did to him... They criticized him and tried to kill him. Expect the same reception from a world that doesn't believe in God. He tells us, that, look at how they treated me. That's how you can be treated. But what's the second part of that lesson? Now look at how I responded, and that's how I want you to respond. Don't take it personally. But what do we see in 1 Peter chapter 3? Remember, Peter is the source for the book of Mark. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But how do you do it? Do you lash out at them? Do you get mad at them? Do you you call them trashy names too? No. With gentleness and respect. We have to be better than a world of sin. We have to respond to that criticism graciously, patiently explaining when they get it wrong, when they bring unreasonable charges, and tell them why we have a reason for hope in Jesus the Lord. That's how we have to respond. And Jesus models that for us here as he explains the real reason for what you're seeing is that Jesus is more powerful than the demonic forces opposing us in this world, and you need to follow him. One thing that I've always heard is don't get wrapped up arguing with somebody about something trivial. Take the conversation to Jesus and talk about him, because it doesn't matter if somebody agrees with you. It matters if someone agrees with Jesus and acknowledges him the Lord and has their sins forgiven and their life changed. I cannot change someone's life by getting them to agree with me, but I can't change someone's life by getting them to realize who Jesus is. It's all about him. That's the lesson here. So how does Jesus respond to this misguided and at times slanderous slew of criticism heading his way with a measured and sensible commentary? He just talks about the issue. He doesn't make it personal. And he helps people see the truth by guiding them through it in a very measured response. And with some common sense, hello, we could use more of that in our world, couldn't we? Think about it. Does that charge really make sense? And he's helped them to see that it didn't. All right. So that gets us to the last part of this. Very interesting. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it because. I I opened my mouth again and the time flew away. But here we are at the end of these last three verses, take a quick look at them. I actually thought for a brief moment earlier, and then I laughed at myself, it's never going to happen. But I might want to talk about the verses at the end of this chapter, beyond verse 30. Um, uh, Very interesting in the scripture, whenever you see Mary and the family come up, that Jesus always puts them in their place. Mary is not the mother of God, and you should never pray to Mary. She has no more standing before God than you and I do. Even though she was a remarkable, remarkable saint and had a very important role in Scripture, that the Catholics who try to worship her is not consistent at all with what we read in the Scripture. So I'll leave it at that. We'll focus on verse 28 through 30. Um, Oh, I haven't even finished these verses. Oh, I just didn't update the title. Sorry. This is actually verse 28 to 30, as you can see. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus doesn't rise to defend himself, but he does issue a stern warning here to those who tried to slander him. Because they've actually made a, a huge mistake. Ever heard the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you? We talk about the animals lashing out. And, you know That wouldn't wouldn't be smart. You know, if my dog bites my hand, I'm probably not going to feed him that day. I'm probably going to put him down. Like I'm, His life's probably over. Be careful. Because Jesus pointed out, you know what? They, they meant to slander me by calling me the Lord of Trash, what they're really doing is they're really criticizing the Spirit of God. And here's why that's important. It's not that the Spirit of God is, is vengeful. It's that the Spirit of God is the only thing that can turn your heart towards God. And if you slander him, if you offend the Holy Spirit, then there's no path of salvation for such an individual. And that's where the religiously, their heart was so hard They were willing to call God's Spirit. Remember we saw in the the baptism, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as a dove? So what was really behind Jesus doing all these miracles? God's Spirit was was within him. Yes, he's the Son of God, but he also has the Holy Spirit working through him. The same Holy Spirit we have, by the way. The same Holy Spirit that did all his miracles in the book of Acts when Jesus was no longer here. So the Holy Spirit is capable of doing these amazing things. And they... We're accusing that power that the Holy Spirit was displaying as being the spirit of the Lord of demons. Uh-oh. And Jesus is pointing out, you've made a huge mistake. Because that's an eternal sin. Because if you offend the one force in creation that can tenderly lead you to repentance, there's no hope for you. You're lost in the hardness of sin. Let's just look at this real quick, and just a reminder and encouragement to you in Titus chapter three, as we look at what Paul wrote here, as he talks about in the time when we were foolish and disobedient. Right? All of us before Christ, before we recognized we were sinners and we repented and accepted the good news about Jesus and His death on our behalf for the payment of our sins. So when we were lost, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, didn't it? And look at verse five. He saved us, not because of works done by us. We didn't do works of penance to make up for all the bad things we did, did we? No. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, then you see in verse 7, we were justified by grace. Our conversion and our faith in Christ was because of what the Holy Spirit did. Without the Holy Spirit... We could never have come to believe in Jesus and accept His free gift of salvation. That is why the offense of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin, because if you offend Him, how are you ever going to repent? You can't repent unless God works in you by His Holy Spirit. All right? So that's something that comes up, you know, sometimes almost a trivia question what's the unpardonable sin? But why is it unpardonable? Because Without the Holy Spirit, we never would have been able to come to Christ and experience that forgiveness. Alright. So, Jesus does mention here at the end of the story, it's a spiritual catastrophe for someone to get so hard-hearted that they're even willing to criticize the Holy Spirit, when it's the Holy Spirit that needs to break in and change their heart. We need to surrender to the Holy Spirit, or we can be forever cut off from God in our sins. And what a tragedy. Jesus actually kind of been having pity on his critics, isn't he? There's a tragedy. Instead of lashing out at the religious critics, he pitied them. Because they had cut themselves off from the forgiveness of sin that he was going to go to the cross to provide for us. And he was sad for them. And he warned them about the road they were taking. Don't react to your critics. Understand that they're on the wrong side of the battle. And they're the victims, caught up in their hate and their criticism instead of simply thinking things through and coming to Christ. So have your answer ready and think about how you respond to people. Don't lash out like the world does. Don't cuss out the people who cuss at you, but have a gracious response, recognizing that this might be their last chance to soften their hearts and come to the Savior. So. Ministry always going to be criticized. Try to see people from a worldly, pers- not a worldly perspective, but look beyond that to see what God is doing in their life. God can take the most unlikely people. Remember Saul who turned into Paul. Don't write somebody off because you think you know them. If God gets a hold of them, He can do anything He wants through them. It's an amazing thing. Recognize and dismiss senseless accusations. They're all around us. Don't overreact, but just help people think through what's really true. Expect your opponents to resort to lies and to slander. Don't be surprised, but remember, Jesus is stronger than all the spiritual forces that oppose us. We will be criticized and attacked, but Jesus is stronger. And don't, and just remember, it's the biggest tragedy of all when someone blasphemes the Holy Spirit. because the Holy Spirit that can break our hearts and convict us of our sin and lead us to the cross. <laughs> Such an important thing. We are skipping ahead, but the next four lessons will be in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. So that'll be pretty easy to follow once we skip over chapters 4 and 5. I encourage you to read those on your own. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have set an example for us. And, and once again, everything that we face in life, We see that you endured the same trials, tribulations, and temptations. And help us just to remember to be more like you and less like a world that's so bitter and argumentative and take everything personally. Instead, let us lose our self-identity. Let us find our identity in you. And let us help people to see you for who you really are, to sort through the lies and the misstatements and the misinformation and to realize that the accusations are sometimes without merit, and to point people to you so they can see you for who you really are. Help us to represent you well, and to not get caught up in a cycle of criticism, but simply to be a good example and to share your truth patiently with a world that desperately needs to soften their hearts and invite your spirit into their lives. Thank you for your word and your encouragement, And yes, that stronger is he that is within us than he who is within the world. Let us go out victorious as your servants today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.